Please remain standing for the reading of today's gospel lesson. It comes from the latter part of the ninth and early part of the tenth chapters of Matthew, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Listen for the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went about all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every sick disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, Cast out demons. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I learned something about this text from my friend Harry, who lives in Baldwin County. Harry is retired, but he manages a family farm. And a few years back, he began experimenting with crop planting. It was really more like a garden and then a glorified garden, you know, start small with some tomatoes and a little bit of squash, all quite manageable for the needs of his wife and for him. Well, the next year, Harry tilled and planted. He had, uh, he had a beautiful orange tractor that was big and it held a lot of diesel fuel. He could go at it at that point. And so he added some rows he added some corn to the mix, and by the third and fourth year, he had two types of squash, two types of corn, which received, I don't know, eight to ten rows each. The okra had doubled in row size and in length, and then Harry started dabbling in the fruit of the vine, watermelons. <laughs> and so I learned a few things that summer. First, uh, one does not pick okra. One cuts okra. Do you know this? You don't even have to have a knife and you're cutting okra as you're pulling it off of the stalk. And it has to be cut every day because it grows so quickly and any good southerner knows. You want the small to average size okra. You don't want the large okra. It doesn't taste as good. Second thing I learned, whilst inspecting those watermelon vines for watermelons, one should never point to a baby watermelon and say these words of condemnation. Ooh, 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 there's a watermelon. I see it, I see it. It brings a plague on that watermelon and on the whole watermelon family for a city slicker to come and point at it. Let the watermelons be. They are sweeter to us when we leave them be. 
The third and perhaps most lasting observation I made about all the fruits of Harry's labors that summer is that if one intends and succeeds at planting so many crops, one must have a plan to harvest said fruits and vegetables, or else one will rely on one's preacher for help, and that's not great for a farmer, if I'm being honest. Because the okra, it grows prolifically. The squash will hide from you. It needs to be discovered and picked. And then as the corn matures, it's time to harvest, and five acres of corn to pick by hand, that's a lot. What does one do with such well-laid plans and intentions? Well, what Harry taught me is, when there's a bumper crop, it's time to give some things away. So we did that. There's only so many tomatoes and squash. I mean, you, can, you can't have an okra and squash sandwich. I mean, it just doesn't last that long. That's a signal that something has to be done at that point, right? So we began identifying people in the community who really didn't need to be getting out and getting their own groceries, and they received fresh vegetables, or grieving spouses, or those who were struggling to pay their bills, they received vegetables too, or single moms. Even still, the harvest was plentiful, but the laborers refused, so we needed to recruit some help, which we did. But the one caveat is that in giving away all of this bountiful harvest and, and orchestrating volunteers to help with it, it had to be anonymous. No individual received credit for it, just the church, if need be. So that's what we did. We picked and we cut and we avoided pointing at watermelons that summer. And somehow, these words from Jesus came to life for me. Ask the Lord to send laborers into the harvest. Grab a wire-bound veneer basket, load it up. There is plenty of work to be done. Of course, Jesus was speaking of, of human souls and, and of human stories that needed to be collected and healed and redeemed and then given away to the world so that more redemption and healing could take place. There's plenty of ministry to be done to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. Jesus did that by sending the twelve. It's a little funny to me how fresh vegetables can cure the diseases of despair. Someone thinks they're all alone and then all of a sudden this, this bag of silver corn and yellow squash show up with a note from the church that said, God loves you and so does the church. It's fun to watch the demons of doubt and stress be exercised by the delivery of something as simple as a cold watermelon with a note that says, you are loved and you are never alone. When someone walks through the valley of the shadows of death, of suffering even, when one has an unclean spirit of separation anxiety from those one loves, but receives a cooler full of fruits and vegetables with a note that says, keep the cooler, and by the way, the worst things are never the last things, then that person, that person somehow becomes a little more whole, a little more healed, both of which are steps toward becoming a little more human. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few whether at a farm in Baldwin County or 2,000 years ago with Jesus or right now, there are endless opportunities for the church to be farmers of healing, cultivators of healing in this world. A couple of things I want to say about this text. We haven't heard very much about the disciples, at least not by name, up until the ninth and 10th chapter of, of Matthew's Gospel. Since, 
since Jesus called them on the seashore, they've, they've taken a back seat. They've been watching and observing Jesus do his thing. And prior to this text, he's, he's healed a paralytic. He's done some pretty uh, incredible things. And, and to think about those who were following him. I mean, Peter denied Jesus. Judas sold him out. Matthew was a servant of Rome. He was an employee of Rome. And, um, and, and Simon was an insurrectionist and wanted to storm the capital and take out the powers that be in Rome. And yet Jesus called both of them and said, hey, uh, we're going to do this together. Strange lot of disciples. A lot of tension there. And we ask, into these hands, Jesus, the mission will be entrusted? Yep. So the first thing I love about this in light of the harvest being plentiful and the laborers being few is that Jesus chooses to work through imperfect people. Ain't of that good news. It is for me. Second thing is about this text that I think is important is up to now, Jesus has he's calmed some storms, he's exercised some demons, he's, he's taken time to squelch chaotic situations. He can heal and control the, the natural order, but the one thing that he cannot seem to control is the explosiveness of the grace of God, the good news. The gospel seems to have a power of its own, like this out-of-control summertime okra and squash. It just grows and grows and grows. And Jesus, he's just one human, and he needs help. He needs help claiming the power of God. So up to now, the disciples have blended into the crowd. They've been a backdrop. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling them forward by name, like we just did with Eliza. We drew her out of the waters of baptism, and, and you made a promise to her to cultivate the gifts, the seeds that have been planted in her life until she's able to profess that for herself. That's what we do as a church family. Up until now, the disciples have been watching Jesus teach and preach and heal, but it's their time now to rise to the occasion. I can't help but think that if Jesus sought help, Jesus now, if Jesus sought help to do ministry, what does that say about His church today? I think it says this, this idea that ministry is for one or two or for a group of small group of people is we just throw that out the door in light of the gospel. There's too much to be done. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. I also think Jesus began sensing this opposition to his ministry. People didn't exactly know what to do with Jesus. All the wrong people were making their way to the table, and they didn't come with clean hands or clean lives. All the wrong people are, are those who receive the healing touch of, of Jesus. People don't know what to do with that. Maybe that's why Matthew tells us Jesus is walking through all these fishing villages. Uh, and again, from last week, both of these texts open with Jesus walking. That was your homework assignment, to walk your neighborhoods this week and to see what needs exist. And some of us didn't have much of a choice, right? <laughs> we came out of our homes and we saw immediately the needs that needed to happen after the storm on Wednesday. Jesus is walking around and watching people. He was a people watcher. We should love that about Jesus. He watches people, he eats well, he turns water into wine, and he takes naps. Check, 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 right? Love this guy. <laughs> so he's walking around and observing in all these different villages people who look like sheep without a shepherd. You know, it's dangerous to leave sheep unattended. 
exposed to the elements, vulnerable, harassed by predators. It's not much different when we remove ourselves from the flock, exposing ourselves to any number of illnesses and demons that creep into our minds and into our soul. We need to be healed, being connected with, with one another. But what arises in Jesus is not a four-step action plan. It's compassion. Do you know that word, compassion? It means a couple of things. One definition is it means to suffer with. Compatio, to suffer with. It's a word that's used two or three times in Scripture, not the least of which is in the Good Samaritan. He had compassion and he went out and he scooped up the, the man who had been beaten and stripped and left for dead. Compassion, to suffer with. But another interpretation of the word compassion is a stirring in the bowels to be gut-wrenched because something isn't quite right. You ever had a gut-wrenching moment that something is not quite right in your soul or in the soul of another human being or in the family or in the neighborhood? Jesus does something similar right before He dies for the world. He looks out over His favorite zip code, Jerusalem, and He weeps. Jesus' gut ached because He looked out and He saw people who needed the bread of life, living water, and the healing grace of God. Time was on the essence. The harvest is now. The bumper crop is now. So the challenge is, I think, implied. Who cares so much about the healing needs of another human being that he or she is willing to walk alongside Jesus right now. There's an urgency to this text, you see. And it's bothered me all week, really, uh, mostly because it's summertime and I know we're ready to slow down life's pace, not to speed it up. We need to breathe and take a, take a break even as a church, to renew and to recharge. But this lectionary, it has a sense of humor on Father's Day. This lectionary text says, no, no, it's now is the time for compassion. Now is the time for the harvest of healing because people are wounded and broken. People need Jesus. Person next to you needs Jesus. Person in front and behind you needs Jesus. You need Jesus. Persons not here today need Jesus. Your preacher needs Jesus. It's time for the Matthews and the Simons, the Peters and the Judases all to work together because the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Christ needs help spreading the good news. It's already spreading like wildfire. He needs hands and feet and occasionally a voice to remind us that demons and wounds and pain are only temporary. The mission of Christ is a tall order. Cure the sick, raise the dead, Cast out demons. 
Sometimes that mission is outside the walls of the church, and sometimes it's inside the walls of the church. And let's be honest, who feels up to that challenge, much less called to it? We're not equipped to do what Jesus did and how we, he did it, are we? You better believe we are. When one person in the body suffers, we all suffer. Just this past week, um, it marked the 60th anniversary of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. 60 years ago, Dr. King wrote from jail a letter to the robes and stoles of the world. But his words are so apropos to the church still. He reminds us that we're all interrelated in life, that we're caught up in this inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. But I love the part that sometimes gets left out of that quote. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be who I ought to be unless you are who you ought to be. And you can never be who you ought to be unless I am who I ought to be. That's the interrelated connection we call the church. We might not feel equipped to cure the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons, but we do possess the power to see people as God sees them and to concede that we're not whole without one another and to read in Scripture the, the dominant theme in my estimation that healing and reconciliation of God's people to God and to one another, it spans all 66 books, friends. It's in all of them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few for this work, and it's time that we rise and take steps believing that the ministries of healing and, and wholeness belong to the church, are a gift of the church. The challenge is, or the tension is, that healing is messy, right? We don't really do well with messes especially those messes that are actually wounds. We want to band-aid it and move on. But healing is hard. Healing is painful. I've started going to this place called Hands-On Healing. Great name for a business. Anybody know Hands-On Healing? It is one part massage, uh, one part physical therapy, and one part contortion or something. I don't know how to explain it. All I know is I have to go through the pain in order to release pain. And sometimes that's how the body heals. We don't wish that, do we? But sometimes to get to the place where we need to be healed and whole, we have to do the hard work, the messy work, the painful work to get our bodies where they need to be so we can stand as we are supposed to stand. That's the goal. So when the body of Christ is, is wounded, it needs to be triaged. It needs to be cared for, attended to, so that the rehab can start as we walk again together. As we start becoming agents of healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons. Bishop Brian and I love this text. We, we chatted after, after the service. I remember a sermon he preached, gosh, probably 15 years ago on this very text. Isn't it funny how some of these themes continue to linger in one's soul. He often has said that he would love to walk into a church where this was the mission statement. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. He said if he ever found it, he was going to join it right then. <laughs> it's a healing ministry. 
heal the sick and raise the dead, to cast out demons. The thing is, Jesus was recognizable by his scars after resurrection. Scars on the outside heal. Sometimes those on the inside take a little longer. Peter was known for his denial that needed redeeming. Every disciple who abandoned Jesus was known for that, but not a single disciple was left in in his or her abandonment. Jesus found them. He cooked breakfast for them, which is fantastic. And then he brought them back into the family because the harvest of healing is plentiful. He needed more laborers for the work. Disciples, my friends, are known by their wounds, or they should be. We're stronger in the broken places because that's how the grace of God changes our story. I've actually felt, I've never really felt a connection with someone until that person was willing to share the story behind whatever the scar is. You know what I'm talking about? I love celebrating the victories in the lives of others. They, they inspire us all. They inspire me to do more and to be better. But, but if I'm being honest, uh, life sometimes makes more sense and there's a lot more connection when we hear about the power of forgiveness and the woundedness that could have been avoided but wasn't, but is now reconciled among two people who were close and then were estranged and then came back together. They didn't know how. They don't know where the power came from or even the, the urge or the nudge, but it happened. And, and give me that degree of honesty, and I'll show you a church that's resurrecting and rising, an authentic church that's willing to do the hard work, the messy work of moving forward. There's one writer that, that said this, because we're Easter people, at the end of the day. This writer said, the things that happened to Jesus' body, the state-sanctioned violence, the flogging, the crucifixion, they remained with him even after resurrection, uh, even after he rose from the grave. He still bore the marks of that pain, but the pain was not which defined him, not that which defined him. And if you think about it, resurrection, it tracks with the messiness of Jesus' life, some of which we just, we just read here. He went about the countryside, turning water into wine, eating with, with all the wrong people. He touched unclean uh, spirits and unclean human beings, and he angered the religious folks, and he, he spit in the dirt and put it on the eyes of someone who was blind, and then it fell off like scales. And then he started saying all these strange things, like the last will be first and the first shall be last and to forgive and to love those who persecute you, that's so strange. But the kingdom of God was breaking in, you see. And the thing that really got under people's skin wasn't the question, uh, is Jesus like God? But what if God is like Jesus? You see, the image that we receive about who God is comes to us in a human, willing to do messy things, hard things, to redeem, to reconcile, to stay at the table, to bring people back into the fold and back to the table. And if that's the way that we see God through Christ, it changes everything. To see that we're part of a story that follows a Messiah who was willing to die and not to to condemn those persecuting him, but forgave them. The harvest for that is plentiful, but the laborers for that are few. We see in Jesus a God who does not lift a finger to condemn, but to love and to save. This is an image of God who raised Jesus from the grave, still wounded. The memory is still there. 
Our scars and our sorrow, friends, will always be a part of our story, but they never have to be the end of that story. They explain us, but they don't define us. Only grace gets to define us. And to the extent that we are willing to be gracious to one another. It's so simple, yet it's so hard to move forward because the harvest is so plentiful. But it's so simple and yet so hard to be kind and to smile and to hug and to shake a hand, to send a card, to make a call, send a text, to deliver veggies in a cooler that you don't want back. The need for wounds to heal is plentiful. The need for friends and for family to talk again is plentiful. The need for people to to come home is, is plentiful. The need to allow someone to heal and not to continue opening old wounds, but to leave that in the, in the tombs is plentiful. The need to trust again, plentiful. The need to rid ourselves of the demons of anger and distrust and, and power and control and idolatry, it's plentiful. The need for laborers to commit to this work, plentiful. We'll scatter in just a moment like seeds into the wind, into our various mission fields. Take note of the needs around you. Take note of the needs within you as you care for self and your enemies and your neighbors alike. Ask this week for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. But don't be surprised if He sends you To the glory of God, amen.